Hello and welcome to the World of Intelligence, an open source intelligence podcast brought to you by the Jane's Intelligence Unit. For more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training. I'm Terry Patter, and today I'm joined by Kyle McGrawty and Mark Wilson and our first podcast guest of the series, Laurent Bodo from Tech Against Terrorism. I thought we'd kick off by actually introducing Kyle. You weren't on the first episode. So Kyle, do you want to say a bit about yourself and some of the stuff that you've done up to now? So officially, I am the Jane's National Security and Government Open Source Intelligence Consultant, which is a mouthful. Um, essentially, what I do is take my previous experience um, working in the MOD as a British Army Reservist for nigh on 10 years and use those skills and that knowledge to teach open source intelligence techniques to national security and government organizations. Awesome. I thought we'd start a little bit just by covering any major developments that we've seen in open source intelligence over the last month or so. Mark, did you have you seen anything particular in your sphere of research that has changed? One thing I think is worth mentioning, and apologies to Lorraine if I'm stealing your thunder a little bit here, <laughs> is the Dissenter web browser. We spoke about that previously, but um, my experience of using that web browser is that it's kind of a comment section of the internet that if you go onto the internet and you're not using uh, that browser, you don't see those comments. But all of a sudden, if you use Dissenter, you can then see the comments of other people who are also using Dissenter. I've run a couple of tests on this myself. I visited a few web pages, mainstream news websites that were running stories on security services, for example. And you saw people commenting and um, being quite critical of security services in, in that regard. Now, if you visited that website without dissenter, you'd be none the wiser. You wouldn't see anything about that. But for me, it's one to watch going forward. I mean, I don't know what your experience of that has been, Laurent. In general, I would say that the, the whole idea behind dissenter, so the browser, they also have extensions. It's not the problem per se. So the problem is only... Or as I said earlier, in general, um, technology is a double-edged sword. So you have people who use this tech for good, but then you also have people who abuse technology for various purposes. And this also includes violent extremists, but also terrorists. And uh, with this center, with the extension, we also ran a couple of um, experiments. And we just went to general news, news sites, particularly looking at recent terror attacks and seeing what people have commented or left there. And it's quite shocking what you can actually find there. So you can see comments like, oh, I wish more people would have died and things like that. And I think from an OSINT perspective, especially for law enforcement, this is something to look at because once you have established or created your account, you can then follow up and look into who said what and identify perhaps violent extremists or those that might become terrorists in the future. Yeah, it's a great point. And just to know, you know, if you don't, if you're not on that web browser, you don't have access to those comments, right? Exactly. Just completely unseen to you. So I also think the the idea is is quite genius. So you basically visit any website that you want. And if you want to leave a comment behind, you don't have to literally go onto, let's say, the Guardian uh, section and leave a comment. You just activate your browser. And what it does, it's basically creating a deep layer over the surface web layer. So you can leave the comments behind. And as you said, no one can see it, only those with the same extension or with the browser. And this is quite powerful. But as I said earlier, it can be used for good, but it couldn't be also exactly. abused. So for those, those that really are a little bit concerned that those comments will be taken offline if, it's, if they're made on another social media platform or their account will be shut down. If we're talking about comments on Gab, they, they can kind of help them evade those crackdowns. Is, it, is that, would you say that's fair or? 
Yeah, so what I what I find also quite powerful is that um, a lot of social media companies or tech companies in general, they try to take down these kind of comments or take down violent extremists or terrorist material online. But with this kind of extension, you can't really take it down because you're not commenting on those websites. So yeah. it's not the problem. It's legally and technically also quite challenging. Let's say you own a social media platform and... Uh, your job is to take down terrorist and violent extremist material because otherwise I would, you know, I would ask you to pay a lot of money because you violated certain laws or whatever. But in this case, you can't really ask the companies to do that because the content is not hosted on their server. Right. It's hosted on the disenter or that extension, wherever it's leading to, to what server it is. Because it's creating this deep layer over the surface web, it's not hosted on the server on that website so taking down that content is literally impossible because yeah. it's not there it's yeah. only on the deep web on that whenever you activate the the extension uh, this is also what we are currently looking at and researching at tech against terrorism we try to uh, understand and research how violent extremists and terrorists in general use tech and we try to better understand what you can do with this kind of technology in order to anticipate you know um, how to disrupt it basically this might be a good point at which actually, Laurent, to get, uh, to get you to introduce yourself maybe and give us a bit more of the, a background on how you got into open source intelligence and some of the work that you've been doing previously and also recently with Tech Against Terrorism. Yes, absolutely. So um, thanks again very much for uh, inviting me onto your podcast. Well, thanks for joining us. So currently I work as an open source intelligence analyst at Tech Against Terrorism. For those of you who don't know Tech Against Terrorism, it is a public-private partnership and we support the global tech industry in tackling terrorist use of the internet. And my job specifically is to research and better understand how terrorists and violent extremists use various tech for various purposes. So we all know the big terrorist organizations such as ISIS and what they have done. They were the first terrorist organization that launched this multimedia, multilingual, unseen campaign, basically radicalizing, recruiting, inciting people to carry out terrorist attacks and also in some cases directing terrorist attacks from afar. Part of my job is to look into these different groups and this includes all kinds of extremisms. So what I'm looking at is what kind of tech is out there, what are the developments, what are trends and how it could be used or abused by these various entities. And this includes all kinds of organizations. Okay, great. And and who else is involved in that initiative, the Tech Against Terrorism Initiative? Yeah. It's various organizations coming together. Exactly. So we, we also together. have a great partnership with the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism, the GIFCT. And uh, together we organize workshops around the world. So it generally, Tech Against Terrorism work can uh, center us around three main pillars. The first one would be around the tech sector outreach. So what we do is we offer in-person training uh, to build capacity. We do this via workshops. Um, so tech sector outreach, meaning that we offer in-person training to build capacity. The second pillar would be around knowledge sharing. So we provide uh, operational resources to help tech companies to better understand terrorist activity online. So, for instance, we developed, uh, this was before my time, before I joined Tech Against Terrorism, the so-called knowledge sharing platform where Tech companies, especially smaller companies, have access to content such as what are actually designated terrorist organizations, what are the keywords that they use, how do these logos look like, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Mm -hmm. um, 
because at Tech Against Terrorism, we specifically focus on supporting the smaller tech platforms. So smaller tech platforms means basically anything that is not Facebook, uh, YouTube, Twitter, etc. Because they don't have the resources, they don't have the uh, the technical knowledge or the, the knowledge behind, you know, in January, they require a lot of support. And the, the last pillar at Tech Against Terrorism focuses around operational support. So the most recent example would be password protecting jihadology. So the web developers at Tech Against Terrorism have done a, like a tremendous job password protecting jihadology.net. So now... Just for people who aren't familiar with it, jihadology is a repository or archive that's been going for a number of years now, pulling together content related to jihadist online publications, magazines, etc. Yeah. In a nutshell, I guess. Uh, Absolutely. Kind of, yeah. And there were concerns um, raised by virus security entities in the UK and also elsewhere that um, because it's so open, people might just use this instead of going onto you know Telegram and share videos, etc. Yeah, because the, the idea behind Jihadology was really for research purposes. It wasn't obviously to help propagate any of this material, absolutely help spread exactly. it to people who might be you know supporters of that kind of ideology. Yeah. But it was yeah really just for research purposes. So yeah, as you said, to make the point clear, it's very important uh, resource uh, mm. up to the present day. And uh, what Aaron Zellin has created is absolutely mm. amazing, and uh, also used by many many academics worldwide. Mm. Uh, it's a very important repository. However, we also wanted to make sure that um, people vulnerable to radicalization who are interested in just looking at a beheading video, they shouldn't see these videos. Mm-hmm. So this is why um, jihadology, one of the reasons, um, has been password protected. And this is also one of the work streams that Tech Against Terrorism does. So our next upcoming uh, bigger project is the development of the terrorist content analytics platform. Uh, the government of Canada has a water tech against terrorism, a one million uh, Canadian dollar grant to develop this content platform. And what it is essentially, it is a unified intelligence sharing database of terrorist content. So the whole idea is to support smaller platforms. But basically what we have currently is that we have these different data sets of terrorist content and terrorist material online everywhere. And um, we don't have a unified intelligence sharing database that, you know, especially smaller tech platforms can access to see what is currently surfacing on platform A, what is on platform B. And the idea is to develop this system and pull together all those different data sets and create our large unified database. So you mentioned helping smaller companies. Is that really important because in part they aren't always aware of the threats that are out there or how threat actors might misuse their platform? Yes, so that's a very good point. Uh, uh, Tech Against Terrorism, we also have conducted research into it by basically analyzing the outgoing links on Telegram to see where terrorist content is actually hosted. Other researchers such as at the George Washington University, uh, the extremism program, uh, they also recently published an article titled encrypted extremism and they found also had similar results basically that these outgoing links that they studied lead to smaller platforms and other studies such as there was also one commissioned by the GIVCT via Rusi, um, I can't remember Twitter and Rumaya. they looked at links on Twitter they found the same thing again that um, terrorists are, um, are heavily exploiting the smaller platforms and one of the reasons is that, you know, the bigger companies, they have ramped up their efforts. They have access to really good top data scientists. They have access to these classifiers, to algorithms, et cetera, et cetera. They have basically the manpower. They have a team that's 
yeah, basically their job is to look for this content, take it down, content moderators in general, whereas the smaller platforms, they lack the resources. They don't have access to, you know, top data scientists. They may have data scientists, but they work somewhere else, but not for this kind of stuff. But presumably these aren't working in isolation. Presumably people are posting content on smaller platforms and as you said, sharing links on the bigger platforms to help spread yes. that around. So absolutely, I guess it's a partnership approach between them, right? Exactly. So, so yeah, so smaller platforms yeah. play a hu- play an important role in this whole ecosystem. And as you said, the bigger platforms are still used because you want to, you know, you want to tell the whole world that now the new video is released. So you use them in tandem. This is a really useful insight into how open source intelligence research or information gathering struggles because if you are an academic researcher just trying to gather this information just trying to look at this extremist content for a perfectly legitimate reason that is research and some of that might be government funded research and some of that might be think tank funded research is difficult is complicated runs up against legal uh, limitations very very quickly so the fact that you have a common intelligence database of this material is immensely useful. The other thing is that one of the things that comes up on our courses as we teach them on a regular basis is find out who already knows. Look for individuals or organizations that have done this research before. The fact that you can get smaller platforms to collaborate and to use a common intelligence picture around extremist material will cut down a tremendous amount of work for them. So it's a really useful thing. And the other thing it goes to, we were speaking earlier about the automation of open source intelligence and being able to gather large amounts of information, sift through it, and then do something with it. Because up until now, it's very, very mandrolic. I remember a comment by a lecturer when I started my master's who said, congratulations, you're now all getting dumber by the day, to our surprise. And he explained it by saying that if you look at the amount of information on a subject and how much it grows with the thousands of researchers every day conducting research into the subject, your ability to learn what they have researched and published in a 24-hour period is insignificant. So you know less about the subject today of the total amount there is to know than you knew about it yesterday of the total amount there was to know, which is the definition of getting dumber by the day. Um, This is how we stop that. So, so yeah. your own personal knowledge grows, but in percentage terms, absolutely it's a smaller percentage each day. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, you know, anybody who claims to be an expert in any of these subjects, uh, I challenge that. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned automation because I know, Lorraine, you mentioned your work in uh, the sort of tech against terrorism area, but in, your, in terms of your personal focus areas, mm-hmm. automation is is that one of them, or do you want to give us more of a sort of an insight into your personal focus yes. areas and what you've been working on more so, recently? I'm really into OSINT. I don't know why exactly but i think this is one of my passions mm-hmm. um let's say so i also do OSIN at the weekends or whenever i have time <laughs> but the problem is uh, sometimes i get in trouble with my girlfriend for doing that <laughs> but uh it's okay um so yeah it depends really on um, what you are looking at or what your research question is because this is whenever your OSINT endeavor starts right with the question and then depending on what i have to collect um i remember a couple of years ago i was on this bigger social media platform that we all know. And I was looking into um, violent extremists and I tried to better understand their behavior in terms of what kind of pages they like, what, what their friends are, et cetera, et cetera. So in this kind of context, I had to start doing it manually and basically pull all the data, the relevant data into Excel spreadsheets, which took a while, of course. And then 
I realized, wait a second, you have to do it differently. And I think today's digitized world, the whole world is characterized by this information overload. I think you, if you really want to get a grip on that, you need to start automating stuff. But it doesn't mean that, you know, um, that it is the answer for everything. It really depends on the question you're trying to answer, right? In some cases, you need to automate uh, the data collection, especially um, on that side. It's really helpful. But when it comes to analyzing it, especially if you look at the subtle linguistic nuances or it comes to translating stuff or geolocating certain things, I think in this regard, um, automation has its limitation. But for data collection, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's great that you mentioned starting with the question because that's sort of where we um, you know, we spend a lot of time delivering training in open source intelligence. It's one of the things we always emphasize to people is the importance of really understanding what it is you're trying to do with the information that you're gathering and what kind of questions you're trying to answer. Um, because otherwise, like you said, information overload is inevitable if you are trying to do too much and if you're not focused enough on the questions. Are you able to give us any insight into what kind of questions you're working on at the moment or anything in particular that you're, you're looking into? I mean, currently I'm looking more onto um, the decentralized web mm. and trying to figure out how things work there and what kind of new techniques or tools perhaps we need to develop or I could use that I find. And just for people listening, when you say the decentralized web, what are we talking about there? So the decentralized web is something that is already here, but um, experts, including... Um, Tim Berners-Lee, who actually created the World Wide Web, he is saying that the decentralized web will um, become the next big thing, basically. So what the decentralized web, in essence, it's pretty similar to the World Wide Web we know currently and how we use it. But the main difference lies in in the middleman. So in order to communicate, mm-hmm. let's say if, if I want to send you a message over Twitter, I strongly rely on Twitter mm-hmm. to work on Twitter server, etc., Whereas with the decentralized web, it's different. They, they want to decentralize it in the sense that there is no server in the middle that you have to contact first. And this server sends an, a, a response back. In essence, in the decentralized web, you would basically communicate with one another just directly, like it used to be at the beginning of the World Wide Web. So it's more peer-to-peer exactly. communication. Right? And uh, one example of the decentralized web would be ZeroNet. Uh, ZeroNet, um, so why I'm mentioning ZeroNet is because there were some experiments. So ISIS uh, sympathizers, I wouldn't say it was official ISIS because I can't really verify it, but it was found that they have played around with it. So they tried to create a ZeroNet page. There was actually a case of uh, a British uh, foreign terrorist fighter. He was basically... Uh, trying to um, create this massive archive of ISIS content. And the thing is with the decentralized web is because it's not hosted on a server, you can't really take things down. Because it's decentralized, it's literally everywhere. So this guy tried to establish this massive archive on the D-Web. And if he had been successful, it would have meant that all the content, you can't really get rid of it. It will remain on the D-Web forever. So this is something really interesting but also highly technical. And uh, I'm still researching it because I really want to get a, a better understanding of it. Because once you better understand the technology and literally understand how it actually works, then you can think about ways of trying to, you know, find some open source information there. From your experience in tracking online violent extremists, um, do you think that going forward in the future, I mean, you said the decentralized web will be the next big thing. Will it be the next big thing for those individuals 
hasn't got enough about it, or enough attraction about it, so that those individuals will leave some of the core platforms yeah. they're using, like Telegram, for example? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And um, to be honest, I think the, the D-Web has its advantages. As I mentioned, you don't need a server, so the content is hosted basically by the users, depending on what kind of protocol you use, but I don't want to go into te- yeah. the technical details. But in essence, they, there are no server costs, so this is really good. However, to access the D-Web, you need special software. Similar to the dark web, if you want to access it, you need, for example, a Tor browser to access it. It makes it also slower. It depends also on how many people are using it at the moment because they have to host the content. So there's also another issue of um, speed and then also around um, the usability. Because nowadays with Telegram, it's just much easier. You know, you have it on your phone, you walk around, you grab a coffee, then you check the latest Nashir news and then just walk around. You know, it's just easier to use than the D-Web. Because I think there are some applications that you can install so you can have the d-web on your phone i haven't looked into it yet so on that i remember what 2000 maybe 2000 1999 there was a project called freenet which did something very very similar and was probably the origins of this um started by i think a uh, researcher at the university of edinburgh and the essential idea is that you give over some of your hard drive for a little bit of encrypted storage you have no idea what's on there you have no encryption keys but what you can do is you can now navigate to effectively other people's hard drives or other organizations' hard drives, and they have a snippet of that website, and somebody else has a snippet of that website. And if I remember correctly, the way that it was structured was that the more popular a website or a piece of information, the more it propagates, which gives a really Darwinian sort of evolutionary aspect to the internet, because if it's not a popular website, it dies away because it isn't stored, which is a way of, A, getting around the problem of servers, which at that stage were expensive and limited, B, getting around the problem of storage, which again was limited and expensive, um, and see getting around bandwidth issues when everything was a dial-up modem. So it's a really useful tool in that sense um, that I think started out as a kind of way to anonymously archive the internet, almost back it up. And in theory, if you had two computers with a direct connection and an unlimited storage space, then you would have the entire internet as it stood in 99 available mm-hmm. to both of those machines. Uh, this is just extracted out onto a much larger scale. No, absolutely. And uh, what I also forgot to mention is that the decentralized web reverses the current data ownership model. So this is why it might be so attractive to millions of people who started caring about privacy after things like uh, Cambridge Analytica and also other elections and stuff that happened with data. So people are more concerned about their privacy. And with the D-Web, it's no longer the, the, the big tech company or the social media company that owns that data because there are no servers. So with the D-Web, you own your own data. So it's you who have total control over the data. That's why I think it might be a possibility of some terrorist organizations to to you know start utilizing it because especially after, let's say, hundreds of thousands of people start using the D-Web because it's so attractive, you can control the data. And there are many, many different projects out there already trying to build the decentralized Twitter. I mean, there, there is already decentralized Twitter, which is called Mastodon, pretty mm-hmm. similar to yeah. Twitter. And I'm pretty sure there's someone trying to uh, replicate Facebook, just decentralized, and then all the other big companies. There's also a decentralized browser. So I think in the background, a lot of things are actually happening, but it's just, we just have to wait until it gets accepted by the wider audience. And the same is also for 
the terrorists who care about operational security. So I think at the moment, on one of the servers I'm currently at, there are roughly 470 people. But I think from those 470 people, roughly 60% are security yeah. and researchers. Do you think that, for example, decentralized social media platforms, mm-hmm. do they present any challenges in terms of plugging those into automated tools, in terms of uh, gathering information? Are there any kind of technological barriers there to plugging an automated tool that ultimately gathers information into decentralized social media platforms? In terms of scraping, um, this is actually on my to-do list for this week. Okay. <laughs> um, but, no, uh, no pressure. <laughs> no, 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 no. So actually anything that you can see on your screen in front of your laptop is scrapable. Um, however, some companies or some platforms, they make it really hard. I mean, of course, they, they should do this because... My data is on this platform, so I don't want anyone to, you know, mass create this kind of data. But when I look on the D-Web, for instance, on this particular platform that I mentioned earlier, it should be possible. The only thing I have to do is just to automate the process of logging in when it comes to using different APIs. Um, I haven't tested it yet, but I think there might be definitely some challenges. But I think it should, be, it should be possible. Yeah. yeah. It should yeah. be possible. This is really interesting. I mean, do you think that for OSINT researchers who are doing their current research using the general platforms and information that's out there, are they going to have to start getting on top of this type of development and information or the information space? Is it something that, you know, if they're not looking at, they could potentially be missing things that could be important to them in our field? Is it something we ought to be on top of? Or is it still too early to say? It really depends on um, the kind of work you're looking at. So in my case, it makes sense because I'm interested in what kind of technology are they using. And I'm also interested in assessing the effectiveness of taking down content. And with the D-Web, because you can't really take down content, it's really attractive for me. But as you mentioned, um, for, for people who are working in the defense or security, looking at various things that are going on around the world, the D-Web is something really unique and niche. So I don't think they will find relevant content out there. The only thing that I would say is um, if Telegram decides to really crack down on on all these Salafi jihadist groups on Telegram, Mm -hmm. and from one day to another, it's gone, basically, Mm -hmm. there might be a possibility, I I believe, that um, they would eventually go on to the D-Web because then... At least it's secure, even though it's not really usable and user-friendly. You can still host your content, and this is what they want to basically, to tell them the news, what's going on currently in Libya. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, uh, it might be useful, but generally I would say no. But that could change potentially, as you say. So this is my view, but I think um, as an OSINT analyst, I think it you really need to know your area and the sources, especially the sources. This is key. The tools, they come and go, but the sources... This is crucial. Um, looking at different trends, mm-hmm. trying to figure out like what kind of other sources could you exploit to find the information to answer your question. And as OSINT analysts, we are always playing catch up because you go where yeah. the information is. There's no point in sitting on Telegram trying to find something out about arms treaties. That's not where you go find the information. There's no point in going on a large think tanks website to find something about ongoing conversations the information is not there it sits in different places depending on what it's about which raises two issues the first one when you talk about um, helping smaller social media platforms as you said they don't have the infrastructure they don't have the expertise mm-hmm. they probably don't have the budget um, yeah. although they have a desire to get rid of this content and they're under a legal pressure to get rid of it as quickly as mm-hmm. possible 
while also still trying to make sure that they're adhering to providing a service because that's their business model. So they're trying to balance that. And then there's the other aspect of we as individuals who do this for a living talking about it in a public forum, um, like a podcast, like a website, trying to talk about tools and resources, have to be aware of the limits of what we say because there are questions around tradecraft and whether we give away too much information and now suddenly we make our own jobs harder. And there are also questions around um, the perception that we are invasive or that we are spending too much time gathering a disproportionate amount of information. Absolutely. I think um, ethics and the legal aspects of open source intelligence are very important. But uh, to be honest, I have the same problem. Whenever I find something interesting, I worked in a really interesting case study recently, uh, a scuba diving um, Salafi jihadist. Right, but I can't really talk about it because if I were to tell you the, the stuff that I found and also the ways I have found it and the, the different sources I have encountered, I would give away too much. And the problem is also that um, we should not forget that open source intelligence is basically intelligence tradecraft. So the tools and techniques that are used by various security entities worldwide. So whenever I publish something online, I'm really careful about what I say or what I write, because I don't want to give too much away. Yeah, the last thing you want to do is, like you say, the sources are so precious mm -hmm. to suddenly give too much away and a whole group of individuals migrate from Telegram to something else, whatever that might be. Um, and now suddenly you may have disrupted multinational counterterrorism operations for countries that are under a real and time-sensitive uh, yeah. threat Now they have lost that source and whatever information they would have got that way, they don't. Yeah, absolutely. And I kind of like see similar challenges with uh, so-called crowdsourcing. Um, when you have a research question and you ask, for ex for instance, on Twitter, there are many brilliant Ozentas on Twitter and it's sometimes really helpful. So Europol does that, but I don't think they really focus on Ozentas. They generally ask, can you identify this object? Because you're really helping with an investigation, giving them leads as to where that video was taken. Um, it's really interesting, but I think there are also ethical considerations to be made. So this is a case I'm working on. And by asking the people to help me with this case, you give away a lot mm, about yeah, yeah. the individual itself, which can lead to legal problems as well, especially now in uh, times of GDPR. Oh, indeed. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Well, it's not only that. You get things wrong. You can get you yeah. make mistakes. Yeah, we've seen and examples then, of that on Twitter yeah. and things, people misidentifying aircraft and what they're doing. Uh, and absolutely. Like yeah. and, and not only that, it's misidentifying individuals, yes. misinterpreting what they're saying or what's going on that have at times real operational impacts especially for organizations that are doing counterterrorism mm. on behalf of a government um, that are probably operating in very difficult places where that information is hard to come by. It doesn't form the traditional model of a counterterrorism operation or a military operation. And so suddenly they are reliant on this. And because we've asked a question on Twitter about some low-level jihadi, all of a sudden they're losing access. For you and I, Kyle, we've been spending a lot of time over the last few weeks delivering trainings. We haven't been really doing a lot of OSINT ourselves. But I think you wanted to mention, we, we, we listened to a really great podcast recently, didn't we, as well, which wanted to maybe point people in the direction of because it's a great example of an OSINT case study. Um, so did you want to mention a bit about that? Oh, yes. Yeah. So um, Jeffrey Lewis does the Arms Control Wonk podcast. 
and he specifically covered the Russian mysterious nuclear-powered missile incident. It's out. It was out on August the twenty-second. Um, it was fascinating. It was fascinating for a number of reasons. I listened to that Arms Control Want podcast religiously. It's a very entertaining. B the knowledge is so impressive, but it's also comments about tradecraft, comments about sources. Um, so. This particular podcast covers what is possibly an incident related to the 9M730 Burovesnik, which um, I've probably mispronounced. <laughs> it, it's, it's NATO reporting name is the SSCX9 Skyfall. Um, now, it's possibly that missile. It might be something else. I won't go into the details about the podcast, mostly because I want you guys to go and listen to it. Um, and also a thank you to the authors of the podcast because they reference Jane's in it as well. Um, so that's one reason I wanted to mention it. But when we talk about social media, the one thing that they did say was that the casualties' names appeared on Telegram prior to an official statement by the Russian government. So the fact that that's out there already and that they have some information around it, and they share the same concerns as us because as they talk through some of the sources and some of the research that they've conducted, um, they talk about, well, actually, do we really need to go into anything more about these individuals' lives? It's tragic what happened to them. But... Do they want to cover more information about that or if they found the limit of what they really need to know? So there's a couple of ethical questions there. Um, the imagery analysis must have been superb on their part because I've got some really good insights into that. It's just all around a fantastic podcast and it's entertaining. That's all we've got time for today. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Mark, Kyle and also to Lorand from Tech Against Terrorism. Please leave a rating on Apple Podcasts or on your preferred podcast listening platform. And for more information on how we can help with OSINT training and development, go to janes.com forward slash OSINT training.